Welcome to this podcast from Neurogastroenterology and Motility. It publishes original research and topical reviews on basic and clinical aspects of gastrointestinal sensation and motility, as well as brain-gut interaction. So welcome everyone to this month's podcast from Neurogastroenterology and Motility. My name's Adam Farmer and I'm a consultant gastroenterologist at the University Hospital of North Midlands and the Wingate Institute at Barts in London. This month it's my great pleasure to welcome Elaine Markland. Elaine works at the Department of Medicine, Division of Gerontology, Geriatrics and Palliative Care at the University of Alabama in Birmingham and at the Birmingham Veterans Affairs Medical Centre. She's recently published a paper entitled Improving Biofeedback for the Treatment of Fetal Incontinence in Women, Implementation of a Standardised Multi-Site Manometric Biofeedback Protocol. So Elaine, welcome to the podcast and many congratulations to you and your co-authors on an excellent uh, publication. So if I could start with asking you the question whether you could give me a a working definition of uh, fetal incontinence and, and what's its epidemiology? Absolutely, and thank you, Adam, and the editors for acknowledging our paper and giving us this opportunity. Um, For a working definition of fecal incontinence, I know that there are some different definitions out there, but I tend to focus on the International Consultation on Incontinence definition, which is the the loss of liquid, solid, um, or mucus um, from the actual anal canal that interferes directly with quality of life and and daily functioning. And so this does exclude in this definition actual flatal incontinence, and some people term term that anal incontinence versus fecal incontinence. So as far as epidemiology, I think it's much more common than people realize. And I think it's definitely um, associated with advancing age and many other significant comorbid diseases. It is more common in older adults, but surprisingly, as people age, it is equally common among older men and women. And the estimated numbers are around 9 to 14% if you look at um, multiple studies from an epidemiologic perspective worldwide. So what are the causes of uh, fecal incontinence? So fecal incontinence um, does have many causes. It is, um, it is to me, a multifactorial uh, problem, meaning that it's not usually just one single cause that contributes to fecal incontinence. But from a um, both a pelvic floor and a gastroenterology perspective, I see it as both having sensory, um, motor, and also just awareness problems that all contribute to um, developing fecal incontinence. So motor and and neurologic diseases um, can definitely contribute to gut gut motility and or pelvic floor dysfunction. Sensory or nerve damage um, can also lead to impaired sensations. And then higher level, um, so cortical or um, other spinal cord issues can really lead to issues um, regarding lack of sensation, and that's what I mean by awareness. So I think we've established that this is a really common disorder, and, and uh, certainly in my clinical experience, it can be very debilitating for, for patients, and they're often very reluctant to, to talk about it. But what are the treatment options that we've got for the disorder at the moment? Right, and I and I think, I think you've hit on some really key pieces. I mean, the big part is just being 
bringing this to the forefront and letting um, people in the community know that there are some treatments available. It is a very disabling and, and very socially isolating uh, condition, but treatment options um, do vary across the gamut. There's um, some what I consider first line or more conservative or behavioral approaches, um, including dietary changes, um, including both um, management of stool consistency um, from dietary and or medicines, and then just working with the voluntary control of the anal sphincter itself from an pelvic floor perspective, I think is really important in terms of first-line treatment options. So those first-line treatment options, just to capture this, include um, both um, muscle uh, work and pelvic floor work, as well as stool consistency management. And then as as people uh, may start with this, if they're not better, there are multiple other types of more invasive type procedures, um, including um, some medications um, that are, have some side effects but can help manage stool consistency, um, injectables. There are also some implanted devices um, that are known to be very helpful for fecal incontinence, um, as well as some surgeries. So, there are, uh, across the gamut, uh, many options for people to help improve um, their condition. So with respect to biofeedback uh, for the treatment of fecal incontinence, how, how, it's, how is it undertaken and what's the, the um, uh, theoretical background to, to using this technique for treatment of fecal incontinence? Such a great question because I think we also think biofeedback is a treatment in and of itself. And, and, and I really try to teach it as a learning tool. So biofeedback enhances um, muscle learning, um, sensation awareness, and I think biofeedback itself enhances um, our ability to teach patients how to better control their own natural responses to uh, rectal filling, their own responses to rectal urgency. And so this is very important as a teaching tool to help um, people recognize and help control and maybe potentially even help use these techniques in terms of their pelvic floor strength to help control their urgency and sensations um, to put this into practice outside of the clinic into their day-to-day -day activity. Great, that's really interesting. So what are the results um, of biofeedback in, in treating uh, fecal incontinence to date? You know, I think there are so many high-quality studies um, that really show the benefits of biofeedback as a tool to help um, muscle uh, awareness, uh, muscle control, sensation. And many of these studies are often not compared or and I think one of the limitations of this field is that even though we, we can show improvement in symptoms um, by using biofeedback, there are a few studies that really compare biofeedback to other modalities. But the key um, studies to date are um, inconsistent. And so some of the studies that actually do compare biofeedback to, say, medicines alone or to just education on diet and other things really show that biofeedback um, in, in comparison to pelvic floor exercises just alone um, may actually be more beneficial. But then there's other studies showing that 
there may not be added benefit by doing instrumented biofeedback. And so I think that's why we have such inconsistent results, um, not because it doesn't work, it's just that maybe we, we could really help compare it to other treatment modalities in a more evidence-driven manner. That's really interesting. So could you provide me some background to the controlling anal incontinence by performing anal exercises with biofeedback oloperamide, uh, i.e. the CAPABLE study? I would love to. In fact, I am representing a much larger group of investigators, and, and this study does um, come from a multi-center clinical trial network called the Pelvic Floor Disorders Network. This is funded by the National Institutes of Health and the National Institute specifically on Child Health and Development with the Eunice um, Shriver Institute. So this is um, a, a government-funded network um, that we, within this network, developed this very important protocol because we realized we need more evidence that um, instrumented biofeedback um, in comparison to other treatments such as medicine, luperamide, would be an important contrib contribution to the current evidence. And so the background for the study is it's been a long time in development through this network. There are several clinical sites um, that are participating. The overall study recruitment goal was met um, a little over a year ago and the current results of the study are not out yet, but what the study um, really helped us to think about and, and from a clinical trials perspective on a multi-center level was to actually develop a very, um, a very detailed protocol to deliver biofeedback across all these clinical participating sites and to adapt this protocol to different levels of providers. So a key portion of this was not just using physiotherapists or physical therapists, but also nurse practitioners and other mid-level providers. And really that's the, the focus of your paper, isn't it? That, um, that yes. it, it provides a, 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 a summary of, of that, that that people can use uh, on a local basis. So what are the components of your biofeedback protocol? Yes, and I think this is also a key contribution of the paper itself is it really gives a detailed protocol. And I think that's one of the, the things that we're, we've missed in this field is that there's wonderful evidence that biofeedback works, but on what level? What are the components? So it's trying to take away the, the components that make the recipe whole. And so our recipe components for this protocol included three separate biofeedback protocols. So we started with a strength protocol. And that strength protocol was really aimed at not only helping improve rectal or anal muscle itself isolation, but also the strength and the duration of contraction. So that was one of the three protocols. The other two protocols are more focused on the sensory aspects of biofeedback, where we had two different protocols depending on how patients presented that we would deliver to help improve sensation. The first of these two protocols was actually um, a protocol for people who had hyposensitivity, so people who had perhaps um, increased rectal compliance 
and had difficulty with sensations of rectal fullness. And so we worked to decrease those thresholds of sensation. The other sensory protocol was based on hypersensitivity. So for people who have very low volumes of rectal distension, really felt an urge, a very strong urge, and we were working with them along with their muscles to help control this urge better. So those are the three biofeedback components that we utilized, and we did it with six visits over a 12-week period with visits about every two weeks. That's really, really helpful. And um, what, what steps do you advocate really in biofeedback training and, and moreover certification of personnel? You know, and I think, I think this study really opened my eyes in particular that um, there are some good programs out there for biofeedback training, although they may be less um, specific just for bowel-related issues and may also include b- bladder. So I think they're actually... Um, if, if biofeedback really is superior to other modalities in terms of treatment of fecal incontinence, and this really is the most important first step, um, that we could do a better job of, of perhaps using this protocol to help with certification. So I think different, different um, practitioners could all attend perhaps the same sort of certification process and within their own practice guidelines, develop these skills. And so, therefore, my final question to you is, are there there any transferable learning um, points here for for other indications for biofeedback, such as uh, dyssynergic defecation? Absolutely. I mean, I think that the key um, issues um, for improving fecal incontinence also apply to other disorders related to bowel dysfunction, um, such as dyssynergia or dyssynergic defecation, where you're really working uh, more from not only a muscle relaxation standpoint, but also a sensory standpoint, and, and using these same protocols in different types of clinical scenarios could really be applied. And I think that's important, too, when talking about training and certification. So, Elaine, I'd like to thank you and your, your co-authors for, for an excellent paper and uh, for assisting on this month's podcast and also to our listeners for tuning in. And I look forward to welcoming you uh, next month for another instalment. Further information about this paper can be found on the journal website. We hope that you have enjoyed this podcast and we look forward to welcoming you to next month's edition.